welcome to Mostly Books Meets. I'm Sarah. I'm Imogen. And I'm Lindsay. And together we are the team at Mostly Books, an award-winning independent bookshop. In this podcast series, we'll be speaking to authors, journalists, poets, and a range of professionals from the world of publishing. We'll be asking about the books that are special to them, from childhood favourites to the book that changed their life. And we hope you'll join us for the journey. Hi, it's Sarah. This week, I'm talking to multi-award winning writer and broadcaster, Hugh Fernie Whittingstall. Hugh earned a huge following through his River Cottage TV series and books. His broadcasting has earned him a BAFTA, as well as awards from Radio 4, The Observer and the Guild of Food Writers. Besides more than 20 cookery-based series, Hugh's TV work includes hard-hitting campaigns such as the highly influential Fish Fight, which brought about changes in law, Britain's Fat Fight, which tackled the national obesity crisis, and War on Plastic, where he and Anita Rani dug into the enormity of the problem of single-use plastic. Since the late 90s, Hugh has published a whole host of books, the latest of which, Better Forever is out on the 31st of December. Hugh, welcome to Mostly Books Meets. Thank you, Sarah. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's lovely to have you on here. I'd like to start off by taking you back to your childhood, if you don't mind. You were born in Hampstead and raised in Gloucestershire. Your early school days were spent at Summerfield School in Oxford, just down the road from where we are. Did you read much as a child? I did. I wasn't quite as voracious as my sister, who was an amazing bookworm and just read everything under the sun. But I did get into the groove of reading pretty young. And and that was probably thanks to a couple of authors that I just really fell for big time and and that gave me the confidence and, and basically the excitement to keep going back to a book or a series of books to, to see what was going to happen next. So I did read quite a bit, yep. There is something to be said for finding that book or finding that author. We say that a lot in the shop, telling that to parents of reluctant readers. Don't worry, as long as the child ultimately finds that book or that author, they will get into reading. But sometimes it takes a while for kids to find it. Yeah, I think that's right. I, th- I found that with my kids, funnily enough. Um, but <laughs> one way or another, they have got there. What's the first book you remember reading? The first book, and I can't remember which was the first in the series, but the first books that I really got into in a big way were the adventure books by Willard Price. Now, this was a series of at least a dozen books, and I certainly read all of them. And they were called things like whale adventure, lion adventure, underwater adventure, gorilla adventure. I think there was one called South Sea Adventure. I mean, if a quiz question was for me to name as many as I could, I think I'd get very close to the full 13, given given a, a couple of minutes. And what were they all about? They were about uh, a couple of brothers called Hal and Roger. And, and their dad, who was a big animal collector, and they went off around the world, uh, more or less at his bidding, uh, sometimes with him and sometimes on little missions of their own. And usually they were in pursuit of some animal that was going to be brought back to a zoo, which these days sounds a little bit unenvironmental. But as with Gerald Durrell, who, who I then went on to be extremely keen on, that was kind of the way of the world. And if you if you were passionate about wildlife and 
wanted to travel the world and see it, one of the things you could do was be a collector for zoos. But actually, these books were were far more than that. They were they were boys' own adventures, and all sorts of crazy and dangerous things happened. So you know, whale adventure was was really a sort of um, junior version of Moby Dick. You know, there were whales crashing around and turning over boats, and 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 the the boys were always getting into scrapes. Roger, in, the younger brother was particularly always getting into scrapes and had to be bailed out by his elder brother Hal. I think somehow I identified with Roger. I didn't have an elder brother, but I thought my capacity to get into scrapes was perhaps comparable. There's something about books like that where there's these kids doing these amazing adventures. I remember I used to read the the adventure series by Enid Blyton, which different group of children, different groups of adventures, but have that same concept of Children basically being sent off to do things that really, realistically, they wouldn't be able to do without some kind of grown-ups well, around. I, I don't wish to be at all sniffy, Sarah, and I hope you'll take this in good part. But my attitude to these books was basically, why would anybody read Enid Blyton when they could read Willard Price? That that was my <laughs> take on it. I did have a crack at Enid Blyton. I remember giving up after a, a few pages. I, I wasn't grabbed, but... But these books really did grab me. I mean, the, the, the sense of adventure really, really was there for me anyway. And do you still have any of your original copies? I don't have any of the originals. They probably disintegrated with time. I mean, this was in the early 70s when I was seven, eight, nine years old. But I do have some more recent editions because I bought them for my eldest son. And he did enjoy them. I found four in his bookshelf uh, just a couple of days ago in, in preparation for this. And it looks to me like three of them have been read and the fourth one hasn't. But that's how it is sometimes, isn't it? You know, not not everybody's going to fall in love with the books that you love in quite the same way or in quite the same depth. No, absolutely. But how lovely is that, that it's being brought to the next generation again? I love it when books stand the test of time and they get read and reread by people as time goes on. I think it's fantastic. Absolutely. So you developed an interest in food and cooking at a young age after discovering the Times Cookery book by Katie Stewart. What was it about that book that caught your attention? Well, it was quite a piece of luck, an odd situation, a sort of bizarre real life case of the dog ate my homework or rather the dog ate our cookery book. This is a pretty well-known cookbook. You know, a lot of people who got cookbooks from a generation or two are going to have Katie Stewart's Times cookbook on their shelf. And if they've used it, they've probably used it a lot. But there was, somehow there was a special edition of this book that was, I mean, I've at the moment got a more recent paperback, but there was some early 70s edition, which I think was conceived as a as a wedding gift of, of that time, presumably possibly thought of as a nice gift for the bride, but also you know, why not for the groom as well? I mean, I, I was always confused at the idea that it was in any way odd for men to be cooks or boys to be cooks. I enjoy cooking from a very early age. But the weird thing was that, that it wasn't in our house, this book. It was in a, a friend of my mum's had this cookbook. And for some recipe or other, which my mum had enjoyed at a dinner party, um, her friend Catherine lent her this book, this very smart, you know, much bigger than A4, almost like a coffee table book, except no pictures, but big print and this gold embossed white jacket with gold writing imprinted in like a wedding invitation into the cover of the book. 
quite a chunky thing. And I don't know what recipe my mum had her eye on, but she borrowed the book. And while it was with us, our naughty Labrador puppy called Rex somehow got at the book. I don't know whether it fell on the floor, but actually probably not, because he spent quite a lot of time standing on the kitchen table, cleaning up scraps. And whenever anyone was out of the room, he was like Labrador's often are, an extraordinary food thief. And I suspect there was just a, been a tiny bit of melted chocolate or a tiny bit of gravy on the book that he could smell. But anyway, he chewed the spine of this book <laughs> so badly that it was an embarrassment. I mean, my mum just couldn't hand it back. So she bought a pristine copy for her friend to replace it. And we kept the dog chewed copy. And, and it went from being dog chewed to kind of man chewed or boy chewed very very quickly and there were several chapters where pages started to fall out pretty you know there was a the the the, the sweets and and cakes chapter the most important um, one the most important one was the one that i it was actually called cakes tea breads and biscuits which i thought was quite an elegant chapter heading and there was a chocolate layer cake in there a chocolate rum gatto a victoria sponge and some scones that I kept going back to. It is actually a great cookery book for anyone who wants an absolutely definitive, guaranteed, will work recipe for all kinds of things, not kind of far out, wacky, original recipes, but sort of classics, all the classics from around the world, the classics of English cookery, you know, anything from a lasagne or a shepherd's pie and some lovely sort of 70s classics like avocado mousse, jellied, creamy concoctions with prawns in the middle covered in cocktail sauce and I mean and I did slowly graduate from the sweets chapter to the savory stuff and particularly the starters and and I essentially started to apprentice my mum for her 70s dinner parties and it wasn't long I was probably eight or nine before I had more or less sole control of the pudding and a supporting role in the starters. So, goodness, you were eight or nine when you were doing that? Yeah, eight or nine and beyond. I mean, the great thing about this particular edition is the print was big. I could read it. No pictures, which I think was probably at that point was a good thing. It's, it's a relatively recent idea that all cookbooks, my own included, you know, meant to be decorated with these stunning foodie pictures of, of food looking irresistible and ingredients looking freshly plucked from the garden, which of course, in my case, they almost always are. <laughs> Back in the day, you know, when I learned to cook, cookbooks were instruction manuals for recipes. And a few of them had pictures in that a lot of them didn't. The ones I then went on to cook with after Katie Stewart, Elizabeth David and Constance Spry, all classics, all just really wonderful books to learn from, all black and white, sometimes little line drawings and things. But without the distraction or indeed the anxiety of thinking, I have to make it look like it does in the picture, you could just crack on and give it your best shot. Yeah, I was about to say that. Now, I'm not a particularly brilliant cook, but I think I would probably find it slightly less intimidating sometimes to read cookbooks that didn't have the images because those images always look beautiful, like you say, and my food never <laughs> Looks beautiful. Well, I'm sure you're doing yourself down there, Sarah. I bet your bet your food looks great. But in in terms of just nailing some classic recipes, I still even today I couldn't recommend Katie Stewart more highly. 
Yeah, when I saw that you were going to talk about this book, it brought back some memories in my head. I am 99% sure that my mum had this on her shelf as well. When you were a child and you were enjoying your cooking, did you think at that point that it could be something you'd be able to do something with career-wise, or did you just view it as a hobby? Pretty much as a hobby. I hadn't really conceived the concept of being a chef of any kind. When I was a teenager and when I started to write for the school newspaper and the magazine and stuff like that, I did start to harbour a fantasy of being a restaurant critic, which I did actually do briefly many years ago for a while and enjoyed very much. The becoming a chef happened pretty much completely by accident. And and also, to be frank, it didn't last very long. I mean, I, I have only ever worked as a restaurant chef for a total of about eight months in my life. And that was at the River Cafe in 1989. That's quite a place to start your career. Yes, it was. It was amazing. It was amazing. And Rose Gray and Ruth Rogers were incredible teachers and mentors. And I learned so much. But I, you know, I was a happy amateur. I did stumble into it by accident. A, a friend of mine was working as a waitress and sort of said I should come in. And it was a stopgap. I'd left university. I'd been traveling around Africa and I wanted to go back there. And I had grand ideas about writing a book about wildlife conservation. And as a stopgap, I went to work. I mean, I turned up at the River Cafe, not knowing whether there was a job, uh, thinking I'd maybe get a chance as a waiter. And by pure luck, somebody hadn't turned up for their shift that day. And they asked me if I could cook. And I said, well, yeah, I cook a bit. I mean, I really enjoy cooking. And they put me on the lunchtime service where I nervously stood alongside the chef on that section and tried not to get in his way and hand him a few useful items. (laughs) And then after lunch, they said, what do you like cooking? I said, well, actually, I really like cooking desserts and cakes. And they said, can you make a lemon tart? I had recently taught myself to make a lemon tart. So they said, go and make your lemon tart. And and I did. And it was, it was a recipe I'd somehow got. I think it was an Alistair Little recipe. Anyway, they were satisfied with my lemon tart. They said, well, that's not our recipe, but we will put it on the menu tonight and you can come back tomorrow. Wow. That was how that happened, which was an amazing piece of luck. Luck which I managed to ride for six or seven months before being fired for being for being too messy. I didn't have the discipline really, and I was devastated. It wasn't a good feeling at all. But it did I did then have to take stock, no pun intended, to <laughs> just consider my next move. And I realized that if I temperamentally wasn't able to quite knuckle down and stay clean and organized in what was probably one of the most relaxed restaurant kitchens kitchens in London at that time then then the idea of then going to work for some crazed kitchen psychopath trying to get his or her third Michelin star wouldn't have been a good move I, I think the saucepans and and spoons would have been flying past my head on a daily basis and probably making contact a little bit too often as well (laughs) you dodged a bullet or dodged a saucepan i did and i thought well maybe i can write about food and that's what i started doing scribbling things down and sending them in and just got very very lucky a couple of things landed in the right place and, and i was given a chance was it around about this time before we spoke today i asked you what book had 
had a major impact in your life. And you said there were two particular books by Roger Phillips. Was it around this time that you read those books? And what were they? The two Roger Phillips books that also definitely made a big difference were his classic mushroom book. A friend of mine's parents rented a house in Scotland for a summer holiday. And it rained a lot. And we walked a lot, come rain or shine. And uh, the whole family took walking quite seriously. You know, you'd, you'd pack a sandwich and a, a chocolate bar and you'd be out for most of the day, which was fine. But I needed some sort of distraction. And I found this book on the shelf and I started keeping my eye out for mushrooms and bringing them back. And another friend, there was a gang of us who were at school together. Another guy there was also quite interested in cooking. And we took a chance on some mushrooms that we were pretty sure we'd identified correctly. And I have to say, please, everybody, never eat a mushroom unless you're sure you've identified it correctly. But we, we, we had, and we found some seps or penny buns or porcini, as the Italians call them. And I thought they were absolutely delicious. And so the bug for wild food, or for mushrooms at least, started then. And then probably when I was at the River Cafe, or, or perhaps when I was scratching around for something to do after I'd been fired, I came across another brilliant Roger Phillips book called Wild Food, which opened up the whole sort of foraging idea and the whole season, all the seasons of the year. And I suddenly understood that there were some amazingly delicious wild foods to be had out there. And, you know, not just mushrooms and blackberries, but uh, all sorts of leaves that, that tasted of garlic and seaweeds that had a really intense flavour and wild fruits, gooseberries and raspberries turning up in the hedge near that I start, suddenly started to see that I'd never noticed before. And it was just very exciting. And And I'm absolutely sure that if I hadn't been inspired by those two books, I'd, I'd never have come up with the idea or certainly wouldn't have had the confidence to think that the idea was deliverable of doing our first TV series, Cook on the Wild Side, which was essentially about foraging. That's quite incredible, isn't it? If you're a chance, you picked up that book and then it's had such a major impact on where you are today. Yes, absolutely. So in the late 1990s, you moved to River Cottage and set out on a mission of rural self-sufficiency. What was it that made you decide to do that at that particular time? Again, it wasn't much of a plan. You know, we'd done two series of Cook on the Wild Side, which had gone down pretty well. And there was a sort of discussion about whether to take the foraging concept abroad and maybe to Cook on the Wild Side in France or, or Spain or something like that. But I had discovered this lovely cottage in West Dorset and started spending some time there with some friends of mine and and with my then girlfriend Marie, who's now my wife. And we we rented this little cottage and went there for weekends and holidays. And I started spending more time down there than anyone else. I, I would um you know, I'd try and get down there on a Thursday rather than a Friday and stay as the Sunday night and eke out my time there because I enjoyed it so much. And one day I, I woke up on my own in the cottage again, staying a bit a day or two after everyone else had gone. And I thought, what about instead of getting back on the road with the gastro wagon, which was our strange Land Rover that folded out into an open air kitchen, what if I actually stayed here? What if I, I just 
put down roots here at River Cottage. I mean, it, it really was called River Cottage. <laughs> that's, that's where it wasn't a made-up telly name. It was called River Cottage, right by the River Brit uh, near Bridport. And I wrote down this idea on a couple of sides of A4 and faxed it to my colleague, Andrew, who's still my partner in all the TV shows that we do. And we talked about it and we decided to pitch it to Channel 4. Like, instead of Cook on the Wild Side, guys, why don't we, I think we had some long-winded working title, Cook on the Wild Side Puts Down Roots. Obviously, that was never going to make the the cut. But under that guise and the idea that I would start a small holding and I would, instead of going back to London, I'd stay in Dorset and I'd experiment with growing veg and keeping sheep and pigs and chickens and just living the country dream. They said, all right, then. I thought that would be one summer, you know, just a, a stopgap idea before either we got back on the road or something else happened. I certainly didn't imagine that it was the beginning of anything, you know, that could possibly still be in my life 20, uh, 23 years later. No, it's just evolved, hasn't it? When I was researching this conversation, you know, you look at how it all built up over over the years and it's just quite incredible um, how that happened. You know, your journey was documented on television. So that was Escape to River Cottage. And then you had Return to River Cottage and River Cottage Forever. And all of those just watched your journey, didn't they, those TV series? That's right. And those three were all at the original River Cottage. But then I left River Cottage. I moved full time down to Dorset. And then there was a slightly odd year when we weren't quite sure if we were going to do any more or not. And by the time... Channel 4 made it clear that, yes, they'd love some more. <laughs> the cottage had been relet to somebody else. <laughs> so so we came up with the idea of just moving River Cottage and turning it into a slightly different thing. So we hired some farm buildings and I started a kind of venue where I would grow veg and and also show a little bit of my home life. And, you know, it was it was indeed the case that I had moved full time down to Dorset. And so my time flipped between starting this new life in a 17th century farmhouse and also renting this barn, which we opened as a sort of venue and held events and and invited people to come and bring their produce and we would cook things with it. It was sort of like a weird rural pop-up. I'm not sure sure the term pop-up had quite been invented, but that, that was sort of the idea. And after that, we re-established River Cottage as a sort of movable feast. And eventually, we we found our permanent home just over the border in East Devon, which is where we now have our River Cottage HQ. And we hold lots of lovely events and run cooking courses with a wonderful team of teachers and, and tutors and chefs. Amazing. And it really is a fantastic place that you've got there. Like you say, the courses, and then, of course, you've got a restaurant on site as well. And there's a lot going on. We're obviously recording this in November in 2020, and it's, it's a difficult time for us all. COVID has impacted everyone um, across the world. But for people like you in, in your particular industry, it's had a very significant impact. How are you dealing with it all? It's been extraordinary. And at times, it's been very, very difficult and, and upsetting because we are in the hospitality sector and we've had to be closed for most of the summer. Uh, well, and, and then we had to make some difficult decisions and we decided not to open one of our restaurants and, uh, in Winchester and, and close it down. It's a really, really hard decision. And 
you know, very painful to, to say goodbye to colleagues. And we've focused our activities on the home patch here at River Cottage HQ and in our restaurant in Axminster. But it's been tough. It's also been slightly schizophrenic because at a personal level, being at home here in this beautiful part of East Devon with my TV plans for the year put on hold, lots of difficult things to do and decide about at River Cottage, but also time here at home with the family that's been actually rather amazing. And all the children even the grown-up ones have been at home for most of the year. We've spent lots of time. We're so blessed to have space and big Devon skies and a veg patch and lots of footpaths and bridleways to explore around here. So we've been outside a lot uh, and in the garden a lot. And that's been amazing. So so really quite a sort of peaks and troughs and, and a very, very extraordinary time. Yeah, I think... We have, we've got to take whatever positives we can out of, of this time, haven't we? And I think that people have certainly rediscovered nature, have rediscovered quality family time and or quality time with their friends as well. Um, and I think that's something that hopefully won't go away. Yeah, I completely agree. And that, that connection to nature is key. And it's important that, I mean, that has been recognised, I think, and I hope by government, lots of very difficult decisions, but one that perhaps was not the right one was that insistence that people should stay at home behind closed doors as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Because actually, we, we now know that outside is a pretty safe place to be. And in fact, if there'd been a much more emphasis on distancing and keeping your space, keeping away from from strangers and keeping close to your to your the people who are close to you, we could have all spent much more time outside profitably in a way that would have been very good for our health and I don't think would have would have increased any risks. But you know, hindsight and all that. Yeah, power of hindsight. So outside of work, do you manage to find time to read at all? I do. Not nearly as much as I I would like. And normally I read when I'm on holiday. I mean, I read fiction when I'm on holiday. I get some novels in over the summer. And again, if I take a break at Easter or Christmas, I try and get a book or two or, or, or three, if I'm lucky in the summer, under my belt. And apart from that, normally I'm reading newspapers, magazines, or a bit of nonfiction or foodie stuff connected with work. But this year has been a bit different. I've managed to carry my reading through outside of the holidays and I've read more and I've loved it. I've really enjoyed that. Yeah, it's been quite a lovely side effect. Um, again, we've seen the effect of this in the shop, people actually being able to find some time and, and actually making a conscious decision to to open a book rather than watch television. Definitely. What was the last thing you read? Well, I'm coming to the end of a of a lovely book called The Gathering by Anne Enright, but I haven't got to the end yet, so I'm not I, I'm not going to talk about it. Although I'm massively enjoying it, um, the book before that that I just was blown away by uh, is Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell, which uh, was published in in the spring of this year, and it's just a wonderful book. It's not about Shakespeare, oddly enough, although he's a key character in it, but he's, he's never named. But he is variously described as the tutor or playwright or the glover's son. It's more intensely about his wife, Anne or Agnes Hathaway. And she's just the most extraordinary figure in this book. 
one of the most brilliant characters I've I've read in fiction for a long time. Absolutely gripping. And it's beautifully written, very, very sad and upsetting at times, funny at others, moving consistently. And it's just a very, very brave. I mean, to, to take this freewheeling biographical take on the story of Shakespeare and imagine a life for his wife and family when he is absent quite a lot of the time is a brave thing to do on one level. On the other level, very little is actually known uh, about Anne Hathaway. And so there's a, a lot of space to be filled and it's filled very beautifully and she's an incredibly compa- compelling character. Yeah, Maggie's a fantastic writer and that book has done incredibly well all the way through the year for us. It won the Women's Prize for Fiction this year and I think it was very well deserved. Yeah, I mean, she's an incredible character. Uh, she's very connected to the earth. She is. She grows vegetables and, and forages, which I love. She understands the ways of the, the hedgerow. She's kind of a herbalist. And she's got this almost witch-like character. And or in modern terms, you could say that she's also something of an earth mother. And somehow out of this character, you can see glimpses of, of other Shakespeare characters that perhaps he, he was inspired to create because of this his connection with this extraordinary woman. So maybe Titania, uh, certainly the, the, the witches from Macbeth, although that's probably not the most flattering aspect, but even sprite-like figures like Puck or Ariel seem to have a connection to Anne in this book. But that's all aside from the very, very tragic story of the death of the boy Hamlet, which we do have fixed in time. I mean, we know that he died of the plague, aged 11, and that the play that bears his name, because it's understood that Hamlet and Hamlet were pretty much interchangeable names at the time. The the play came out four years later and was this extraordinary catharsis for his father, and I mean, the ending of the book is just an extraordinary, extraordinary scene. But the whole book is is quite wonderful. Highly recommended. Absolutely. So speaking of books, you've got a book coming out at the end of December. I certainly have. <laughs> Not a fiction book, but a, a fabulous book all about food. Eat Better Forever. Tell us about it. Well, this book's been, a, for me, a long time percolating um, and actually quite a long time actually writing it. Um, it's been more than two years since I first uh, put put pen to paper or started clicking away at my keyboard. I wanted to write a book that reframed and made sense of the idea of healthy eating in a way that I thought would be really helpful and also really hopeful for as many people as possible. There's so much confusion around the idea of what, what healthy food is. And there, and part of that is created by the diet industry, the diet publishing industry, that I don't sort of roundly and wholly condemn because I, I think there's been some quite interesting and quite helpful books written in that sort of space recently. But the thing I take issue with and, and try and address in the book is it's the idea of the sort of single fix or big idea book that there's one thing that if you stick to it, it's going to sort everything out. Now, and I totally understand that that's quite an appealing prospect for as a, as a publishing proposition but it's not how real life is and it's not how our life with food is so i really wanted to have a look at what we do know about healthy eating and organize it in a way that i think is very accessible and very useful and very practical so i i've actually got the first half of the book is 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 essentially theory and ideas about healthy eating and and general 
set of strategies and the second half of the book is some lovely recipes to put uh, meat or, or actually mainly plants on the bones of those ideas. It is a plant-led book. It is, it's not vegetarian. There's some meat and fish in there, but like my last book before this, much more veg. It's very much the direction of travel for me, for River Cottage. And I think I, I think for, for enlightened chefs generally that plant-based foods should be at the forefront of our eating. They are very good for us. Eating more of them is good for the planet. They can be and they should be really delicious. And sometimes we've got a bit of a, a blind spot that makes us think that plant-based foods are the somehow the also-ran, the add-ons or the, the bit on the side, whereas actually they should be front and centre in our kitchens. And they're front and centre in this book. And the idea that I kick off with, the first chapter of the book, is called Go Whole. So the book starts with three real positives. Go whole, go varied, and go with your gut. These are the three principles of positive eating that underpin the opening of the book. When I say whole foods, that's two words. It's not elided as whole foods, as in brown rice and lentils. It means foods that are whole and natural. You know, it's fruit and vegetables and seeds and nuts and meat and fish and milk and foods that are unadulterated and unprocessed. And we now know this is, you know, this is evidence-based science is telling us over and over again that if these are the foods that we base our, our eating on, uh, we stand a much better chance of staying healthy, of resisting disease, of avoiding obesity than if we eat a lot of processed foods. So this is my my lead point. But to try and unpack that, I also talk about diversity, about foods that nurture our gut, and uh, I, I, the, you know the, those are the positives to lead with. And, and then I do look at the refined foods that I think we could easily dial down in our diets, particularly sugars and refined flours and refined fats, although we should be very open-minded about fat because it's also extremely healthy and vital food when we eat the right kinds in the right way. So I've unpacked these ideas, I think, I hope in a very approachable way. And we also offer up a fan. I say we because these books are very, very collaborative. And especially on the recipes, I work very closely with my longtime former head chef and still key recipe collaborator, Gil Meller, who now has a wonderful publishing career of his own. And we have a lot of fun devising recipes, exchanging ideas. And my food editor, Nikki Duffy, helps me too. So it's been a, a massive project, but I think we've distilled it into a really, really helpful book that I hope lots of people will enjoy and feel the benefit of. Yeah, I agree. I think I think the way it's laid out is very good. Like you say, the initial introduction, you've got these seven principles to work with in terms of maintaining a healthy diet. And I like that when you talked about the whole foods, there was a quite a nice little graphic where you show the whole food and then their processed food equivalent, how they compare, which I found quite interesting. I think the recipes are fabulous. Personally, I can't wait to try out the lunch recipes because I find it particularly difficult to create on an ongoing basis quick lunches that taste good and uh, healthy. And there were certainly a few, quite a few in your book. Good. Yeah. The chapter is probably got the most recipes in it, that chapter, which I call quick lunch brackets boxes, because a lot of them are very portable and a lot of them are aimed at solving that problem of food on the go when it's so easy to grab yet another sandwich or one of those trying to be healthy kind of snack bars that are often packed with fruit and nuts, but are also often glued together with sort of sugar and glucose. And so some really simple ideas for throwing some things together that you can stick in a box and take with you. 
and lots of simple combinations of fresh, crunchy, raw vegetables with pulses and nuts and seeds, and then always a little bit of something to make it very delicious and Moorish, like our tamari toasted pumpkin seeds that are a lovely sprinkle that give you that lovely savoury umami note to a generous pile of crunchy, fresh, sweet fruit and vegetables. I say fruit because I very often work fresh fruit into salads, that little bit of kick of sweetness that you get from a sprinkle of raisins or even just a chopped apple or even just a good squeeze of orange juice in a dressing to give you that natural sweet note. One of the things I talk about a lot in the book is just recalibrate. I have a very sweet tooth. I I mentioned I was... I was the pudding chef at the River Cafe, and I learned to cook from the sweets and tea breads and biscuits section of the Katie Stewart cookbook. And I still have a sweet tooth. But down the years, I've managed to recalibrate my sense of sweetness so that I now really enjoy the natural sweetness of many, many foods without having to add much sugar. And even when I do bake, and we talk about this in the book, and there's a nice clutch of reworked recipes, but basically a a whole heap of sugars just taken out. And you know, you could actually take 20% of the sugar out of almost any cake or biscuit recipe. Nobody even notices. And if you add some nice whole ingredients and nuts and whole grain flours as well, then actually you get something that's super satisfying and delicious and does you some good as well. It's all the small changes, isn't it? You talk about just simple things like removing the sugar from your hot drinks and creating home-cooked cakes rather than buying the shop-bought ones. Yeah. One thing that's really difficult for me is advising people how to eat healthily if you're not going to cook. And cooking doesn't have to be complicated. So many of the recipes in this book and, and, and most of my recent books are very simple assemblies of delicious things that go together well. A little bit of chopping, maybe a bit of grating, sometimes something in a pan. But Every single recipe in this book, Nikki, Gill, and I applied the simplicity test. And if it took more than one pan or had any complicated processes, we either threw it out or simplified it until it was still delicious, but really easy to do. But I think one thing we need to do as a, as a nation is teach everyone to cook. You know, we've been talking about this a long time. Henry Dimbleby has produced this manifesto for food. And at the heart of smart thinking is that we've got to get food, healthy food, into the classroom. Mm -hmm. Very well for people like me to write books like this and, and, and champion the cause of healthy eating. And I hope it's a useful tool for that. But actually, this is something we need to get into our education system because it needs to be second nature. And if you can grab a bunch of ingredients and throw together a meal that's good for you and and keeps your family well. That's an incredible skill and a very useful resilience to, to have in your life. Whatever other problems and challenges life throws at you, if you can cook a healthy meal for yourself and your family, you've got a high level of resilience to weather the storm. Absolutely. Do you have a favorite recipe in the book or is that like choosing the impossible? Well, do you know what? I, I don't want to pick out one recipe and much as I don't want to pick out one idea because diversity really is, you know, that's the chapter two is go varied. And diversity really is a massive part of it. Lots and lots of different whole foods, as many as you can find that you like. And one thing I really encourage people, I, there's a diversity, a variety audit in the book where I encourage everyone to get their whole family to write down all the fruit and vegetables and in that including nuts and seeds and pulses that they like and even the ones that they just don't hate 
and then rework your shopping list around this big collective idea of all the foods the family likes. And then I've got lots of recipes, I promise, that combine them in lots of fun and delicious ways with endless variations that means you'll never get bored. Well, I can't wait to try them out. Like I say, those lunch recipes are definitely going to be coming to the shop with me. Hugh, it's been great to talk to you today. Thank you so much for joining me. I hope everything goes well with the reopening of the restaurant um, and with River Cottage HQ. Best of luck with the new book. It's been a lovely talking to you, Sarah. Thank you very much. All of the books mentioned during the podcast are available to buy from the Mostly Books website. This podcast has been presented and produced by members of the team at Mostly Books in Abingdon. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review and subscribe because apparently it helps people find us.